Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science and we're going to spend the next half an hour with you with a little bit of science. And we have some special guests today. Actually, one guest is Professor Associate Professor Joel Pearson, who um, Stu's actually talked to. He has been doing a little bit of research on hallucinations um, and inducing hallucinations. Mm. Have you heard about this story? Yeah, it's, it's something to do with being able to... Induce a hallucination in normal healthy brain and then see what the pattern it forms in the brain and see how hallucinations work inside the brain. So it's all about that kind of thing. Yeah, which, which will be quite interesting to see how they, um, how they map that in the brain. Mm. Um, and I am actually going to be talking a little bit, not about hallucinations, but an animal that I wish was a hallucination – it is the suckiest of all animals, um, and I'm just going to leave it at that. I went away on holidays a couple of weeks ago. I encountered this animal. Um, I it, love all is animals. Suckiest a clue? Is suckiest a clue? Suckiest is a clue. I'll just leave it at that. I and love everything. I'm thinking we it's will... a remora or a lamprey or something. <laughs> oh. yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe yeah. I don't love no, everything. No. <laughs> you guys can have a guess, but, yeah, they are animals that should be just figments of our imagination for all I'm concerned. Okay, well, surprise us later. Leeches. Ooh, you'll have to stay tuned. On with the show. People might know what the word hallucination means and probably have some idea of what they think a hallucination is. But some recent work on inducing hallucinations has been uh, carried out at the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales. And I've got Associate Professor Joel Pearson on the line with me to talk about what they were looking for and how they went about identifying hallucinations in people. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Joel. My pleasure. Great to be here. So hallucinations, I guess um, people probably have some sort of idea that, you know, if a person takes drugs, they might experience hallucinations and there's certain illnesses like, for example, Parkinson's disease where patients uh, experience hallucinations. What, what, do we, what do we mean when we say a hallucination? What is someone experiencing? So that's a great question. It's one that's really fired up in the last week since this, this paper was published. Driving a flood of emails, discussions online, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube about this exact question. What is hallucination? If we imagine something, mental imagery, is that a hallucination? Are the huge range of visual illusions that we know about, are they hallucinations? So there's all kinds of visual illusions where you can see something that's not actually there. So should we call that a hallucination? And some people will say that no, hallucination purely needs to be a conscious, let's say, visual or sensory experience when there's no incoming information. So in sensory deprivation or when you're asleep, eyes closed, that kind of situation. Where we came down with this study, 
we defined the things you see induced by flickering light as a hallucination because we can't predict what you see when you flicker light at people. First, you might see, uh, so if I just flicker a, a TV monitor or a computer monitor, just black and white, flickering that quite fast. Um, first, you might see stripes, then some blobs, then some dots, then a windmill spinning pattern, some colors, and it just keeps on changing unpredictably. So that's very different to some of the, the, the illusions where every time I show you this thing, you'll see the color red, for example. I know pretty much 99% of the time you're going to see red. So that's very predictable. This flickering, these flickering stimuli, this flickering stuff, it's a lot harder to predict. So that's kind of where we start off with the definition of hallucinations and, and there's sort of a long history of calling flicker-induced experiences hallucinations dating back a couple hundred years, in fact. So this is, this is kind of a standard sort of understanding of it within psychology as well. It's pretty standard, but when you look into it, and some of the discussions I've had in the last week really highlighted the fact that, you know, we don't really have a good, clear definition or framework for what we want to call a hallucination. That, that must make it very difficult to study then. It does, right? So that's why, that's, that's one of the, and also very interesting, I think, that's one of the areas, the reasons I wanted to get into this area, because if you want to be able to study hallucinations in the lab, and not have to just rely on clinical populations, then you need a very clear definition so you can induce it in the lab. The same way that if researchers want to study cancer in humans and maybe they want to use an animal model, they need a definition of what cancer is. If cancer is only cancer, if it's in a human, then they can't do their research on animals. But if you have a broader definition of what cancer is, then you can study it, study the mechanisms in different ways, uh, not always in humans. So, so the same sort of analogy applies to us. So if, we wanna, if we're happy calling this flickering light stuff a hallucination, that means we can study it anytime we want in the lab with any subjects. I can study it just, just on myself, for example. I don't have to go to a clinical population in a neurology clinic um, and, and study it there. And I guess to remove the subjectivity of someone just kind of describing what they're what they're seeing or, or what they're hallucinating is, you know, if, if you can remove that subjective interpretation and figure out a way of uh, measuring it objectively, then you can compare different people in different situations over time. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's one of the more exciting things uh, I think about the study. So as I said, we've, people have known that if you flick a light, you'll hallucinate, you'll see stuff that's not there. We've known that for, you know, hundreds of years. But the problem, as you said, is it's very subjective. How can, we study, how can we study these experiences if we have to rely on people drawing them, if we have to rely on people verbally describing just with words? When you have those kinds of measures scientifically, it's very hard to look at the brain mechanisms, to do modeling, neural modeling, figure out what's going on. You just can't, you can't really quantify it, or it's very, very difficult to quantify drawings or words in the way we like to do in science. So what we did in this study is rather than just flickering lights or a full monitor, we reduced the flickering stimulus down to a ring. Very simple, a donut stimulus. And so um, it's literally I, a white ring on a black background that flashes on. I can, I can actually uh, put up a video of this on our, uh, on our web page that people can look up uh, later on if they want to. Probably best if they're not epileptic or, or uh, suffer from migraines, apparently. Exactly true. There's a, there's a warning on there. Yeah, in the, in, the, in the first four days of the study coming out, I think the, the, the video I put on YouTube got sort of half a million views. So people are sort of 
having fun uh, playing around with it. So, so let me continue. So what happens when we reduce the, the, the type of flickering stimulus down to this ring, this donut stimulus, is that instead of seeing all these random different things, colors and spirals and windmills and dots and stripes, now people just see blobs. Okay. Everyone sees the same hallucination? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Okay. Some people see it stronger than others, but they just see blobs. They don't see the colors, they don't see the stripes, the windmills, all the other stuff. So all of a sudden, oh, okay, if everyone's seeing blobs, that means we can start using different tools to measure this thing. We don't have to rely on drawings and verbal descriptions because we're actually making it a bit more predictable. You're listening to Lost in Science and Stu's interview of Associate Professor Joel Pearson and his study of hallucinations. So from that point, you, you went further and tried to figure out where, uh, where was the hallucination arising. Is that... Yep. That yep. was so an this extension is where, of the... Science, or the it'll get a little bit more complicated. But we did a, a bunch of different things. The first thing we did was we wanted a way to measure the strength of the hallucination. So we had the, the hallucination ring flickering, and then inside we put a perceptual ring where we actually had uh, blobs on the screen that were actually there. And this allowed people to just compare the two. All they have to do uh, is say, in which ring, the small or the large, am I seeing stronger blobs? Okay, and then, we, and then on different experimental trials, we change the strength of those perceptual blobs, the real ones that are there. And this lets us, with enough data, measure the point at which people are equally likely to say the real blobs are about the same as the hallucinated blobs. They've got... Now, yeah. You've got an objective measure of, of the hallucination then? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So it's, a, it's a, what we call a two-alternative force choice yep. comparison. So people have to compare the two rings. They have to say which one's stronger. So now they're comparing basically blobs to blobs, and so we have a way to measure that strength. And this is sort of a standard measure in psychology and, and cognitive neuroscience. So then we, we did a whole bunch of other experiments, the second thing we did was something similar, but we developed a way to measure the speed, because I didn't mention this before. But the blobs actually start moving. Once you see them for a moment or two, they start moving around the ring. And we were interested to see this, measure the speed of that, so we developed a technique to measure the speed. Then we also wanted to figure out, get some insight into where in the brain, or maybe the eyes, this, these hallucinations were occurring. So we did, I guess... You didn't know whether it was uh, uh, something within the eye itself or whether it was in the processing part of the brain or where it was actually happening that this, uh, this hallucination was appearing from. Exactly, yeah. Right. So because so, no one had been able to develop these tools to measure it, it was, it was too difficult to ask these questions before. Okay. So, what, and, and so you set up an experiment to figure this out. What did you, how did you go about that and what did you find? Yeah, so we, we, we utilized a, a, a thing we know about the brain, a trick about the brain, that the information that goes into each eye is not combined until it's in the brain. And we know it's not combined until certain levels of brain processing, so in the, in the cortex, the visual cortex. So before that, the information is kept pretty separate. So what we did, we, did we, we showed people two little rings and presented one ring to one eye and the other ring to the other eye. And then we can flicker those, flicker those in sync, so in synchrony, flicking them together, or out of sync, flickering one, then the other. Yep. 
hope everyone's following me here. Um, yeah, so you're getting a, a different flicker in each eye at different times. Yeah. Yep. And we then we, we flicker this quite slowly where the hallucination is much weaker. And here's the logic. If the information is being combined, and we know it only is combined in the brain, then the, we're actually doubling that flicker frequency. It's, the neurons in the brain are going to receive flicker at a much, a double the rate because they're going to get information from both eyes and because in one condition they're out of synchrony, they're going to get, let's say if we stimulate at 5 hertz, those neurons are going to get stimulation at 10 hertz, around about that. So here's the logic. If these things are being processed in the brain, in the visual cortex, then people should see, experience stronger hallucinations in the out-of-sync, in the out-of-synchrony condition compared to the synchronous condition. And that's exactly what we found. What does that mean? That means so the, the, the eyes are picking up the, um, the flickering and the brain is combining the information from each eye into one single number of flickers. Is that...? Pretty, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it means that the hallucination, what people are experiencing, is being largely produced in the brain itself, in the visual cortex, and not... There's a couple of other areas before the cortex that were also candidates, but we can, we can largely rule those out now. So it's, it's, it's not an optical illusion arising from the way our eye sees the world. It's a, it's a processing feature of our brains that cause this hallucination. Exactly, yeah. So even though a, lot of, a few newspapers and websites have called this optical illusion, what the data suggests is it's really a brain illusion, if you like. It's happening in the brain, not the eyes. So I guess people might be asking, what can you use this information to, to do? What, how, how does it help us as humans negotiate the world? What, what purpose is there to knowing how these hallucinations um, work? Well there's, well, there's quite a few. One, in terms of fundamental basic science, is to understand how the brain creates consciousness. So a lot of people have called that mystery of consciousness, how we experience the world around us from moment to moment, and that creates this feeling of who we are and ourselves. How does the brain do that? We just don't know. So using tools like this where we can induce conscious experiences completely from inside the brain, we can use that as a tool to study consciousness. So okay. that's, that's one thing we can do in the lab. But potentially more exciting for applications is this idea that maybe we can use this as a model, as a lab-based model, to study hallucinations or pathological hallucinations that occur in the real world, so sort of natural, naturally occurring symptoms, like you mentioned at the beginning, Parkinson's. So Parkinson's patients often get visual hallucinations. It's very hard to study because we don't know when they're going to have the hallucination, so we can't always have them in the lab ready to study when they're having a hallucination. So if we can use this flicker hallucinations to study the mechanisms and the brain mechanisms of hallucinations in general in our lab. We can do that anytime we want and then apply those findings to the clinic to help develop new treatments. So it has got real-world practical applications that, that will help people, uh, I guess, if not uh, cure the disease, then at least reduce the symptoms of things like Parkinson's and, and other um, mental health issues. Yeah, exactly. I think it does. Uh, it's early days yet. It's still, you know, in the, in the fundamental science phase, but next 
we move into the translation stage and then the, the actual neurological and clinical work. Let's, uh, it's, it's really interesting work that you're doing, um, Joel, and uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us on Lost in Science and we'll uh, have to catch up in the future uh, as, and check in on how your work's progressing. Sounds great, Stu. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, let me start with a story. I just returned from a holiday to Lamington National Park, which is in South Queensland and unfortunately is not, as the name would suggest, covered in desiccated coconut. But the, that's where the lamington comes from. It's like it grows on the trees there. It's like the original lamington <laughs> like fruit. fruit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, unfortunately it isn't. It's named after Lord Lamington, who went there once, and the only thing he did when he was there was shoot a koala. Thanks very much, Lord Lamington. I prefer to call him Lord Lamington. Yeah, me too, Chris, totally. So Lamington National Park, it's actually a spectacular subtropical rainforest. It's got Antarctic beach, um, more than 100 species of fern. It's got brush box trees that are like 1,500 years old. And it was also where David Attenborough first recorded the lyrebirds back in 1970. Ooh. I know. Um, and there are also more waterfalls than you can poke a stick at. And there are many sticks. So it's a total paradise for hikers and nature enthusiasts. So off we set into paradise for a three-day walk. Unfortunately for us, about 10 minutes into our walk, the rain clouds rolled in and our paradise turned into hell. (laughs) Be a little dramatic there, Claire. All right, let me just tell you why. It wasn't because of the rain or the mud or the cold. They were all very manageable things. But just after the first drops of rain hit the ground, we started noticing things moving all over our shoes. And on closer inspection, it was in fact an army of leeches. I was right. Descending upon us, making their way up our legs to suck our blood. So more ascending upon you than descending upon you. Well, descending first because they I think they might have been dropping from the trees or like Yuck. I don't know. Uh, like we it, ended up It's raining with, leeches. It totally Ooh. was. Like they were on <laughs> how our many, how many arms, leeches roughly they were on here? our faces. So about fifty on each foot. <sighs> fifty leeches on each foot. And I'm pretty good when it comes to like spiders, snakes, I'm fine with all manner of insects. Mm. But there's just something about the leech that really makes me want to scream and vomit at the same time. Which sounds dangerous. <laughs> I just pictured it. And, that's, and, that's and like from, like the exorcist, you know, the kind yeah, of Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and each time I brush them off, so fifty on each foot, each time I brush them off, about ten minutes later I looked down and they were there again. It was wow. it was really overwhelming. Um so this went on all day as we walked and it gave me a lot of time to think about the leeches. Also ask a lot of questions. Where yeah, did they yeah. come from? What were they doing before it rained? Where did they disappear to after the rain stopped? How did they know we were walking past? Like, like, and if we weren't there, what else would they eat? So these are the things going through your mind as your brain slowly loses blood Lose- supply. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so now that I'm back in the real world, I wanted to share my leeching knowledge with you. Right. Because um, as you know, as they say, a problem shared is a problem halved and all that sort of stuff. So, guys, thanks for 
being my support oh, group Oh, you brought for today. in the leech for each of us. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely, lovely of you, Claire. Yeah. I did not. Thanks. Listeners, I did not bring a leech into the studio. I wouldn't do that. And here's why. So the first thing I want to make clear about leeches is that they can vary quite a lot in size. Um, there's around 500 species worldwide and they can vary between seven millimetres long to, wait for it, 300 millimetres long. That's like a foot. That's a foot leech. That's a foot leech. 300 millimetres. (laughs) That is huge. (laughs) It is the stuff of nightmares, everyone. Luckily, the leeches I was contending with on my walk were more along the lines of around 20 20 mil. So about two centimetres. Okay. Yeah. Um, Also, you should know that this isn't just a South Queensland issue. Leeches can be found almost anywhere in Australia where there are damp areas and watercourses. So unless you are in a permanently arid area, you are at risk of leech. Um, And don't think you're safe in the ocean either. There are marine leeches. Sea leeches. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, um, these guys, the sea leeches, feed on the blood of fishes and not uh, humans. But still... Still, they're there. Yeah. Yep. Now, one of the biggest questions I had was around what happens in the dry weather. Where do they go? What happens to them? Do they dry out? Well, the answer is yes, they kind of do. Um, In dry weather, some species burrow in the soil, and in the soil they can survive for many, many months, even when there's a total lack of water. And they're normally squirmy, leachy bodies dry out. (laughs) Squirmy. Make it better. Thanks. (laughs) So their squirmy, leachy bodies dry out. They become contracted and rigid and you can't even see their suckers anymore. So they pretty much just turn into these blackish brown sticks and they can last like that for ages. And then all it takes is about 10 minutes of sprinkling rain with a few drops of water and the leeches go from full torpor to activated and ready to attack. Terrifying. And so what then? They just look for prey? Is that how it works? Yeah, 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 exactly. So that was my next question. How do they know there is prey around? Well, they're very responsive to both light and changes in light and also mechanical stimuli. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it's sort of this trial and error approach. So the leeches, I don't know if you've ever seen them, they, they sort of like one part of them sticks on a leaf or something and then they just wave around in the air just sort of like like a flagpole (gasps) and they just sort of change position frequently sort of exploring using their heads and waving their body and assuming this sort of alert posture um, extending themselves their full length so if there's any sort of changes in um, in mechanical stimuli around them then they know where to go so they're ready for anything really I'm picturing a science fiction film now with like there's a all these leeches sticking up and you've got to sneak through quietly so they can't know you're there. And they're going waving around. There's got to be one, isn't there? Like yeah, the leeches, like the blob it feels or something. Familiar, yeah. It does. Oh. Yeah. Or like just in your bed or something like that. Oh. That's, that's right. They sound like triffids a little bit. Did, you just made them sound you like just, triffids yeah. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But I say triffids do that. And oh. as you know, leeches feed on blood, which means they are sanguivorous. Uh, great word, huh? Mm, Sanguivorous. Mm, mm. That means they feed on blood. Great. Or sangria. Uh, uh, uh. Ooh. <laughs> but they do have preferences for whose blood they drink. So 
there are leeches that are specific for mammals, fish, frogs, turtles, or birds. Um, there's even a leech that preys on other leeches. So I don't know if they suck other leeches' blood or they suck the blood that other leeches have sucked. Like secondhand blood. Secondhand blood. I think it might be secondhand blood. I know. So cruel. I wonder what's worse, a mosquito or a leech? Leech. Is it true that leeches enjoy the taste of disgust and so they go for people who are more disgusted by them? <laughs> I haven't found that in my research, okay. but, um, okay. you know, that's that's probably Valid an experiment. Yeah, yeah the disgust maybe, hormone. Maybe you or anyone but me could could perform. Mm. Um, I don't want anything to I do with that. I think we're going to need actually. you for this one, Claire, <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> Um, they can also ingest several times their own weight at one meal. Yuck. And once they finish feeding, the leech drops off and returns to a dark spot to digest its meal. And the digestion can take months. Ugh, so it's not the same leech when you come through again. That's- no, it's, it's a completely different leech. And they only need one blood feed to last them a year. Oh, well. Yeah. So that sort of answers my question about how they survive when we're not around. Exactly. You yeah, because I was wondering that. Yeah. Yep. So... Now, it wouldn't be a leech story unless we mention the medicinal value of leeches over the ages. You know, back hundreds of years ago, leeches were employed to remove so-called bad blood from patients. Um, but even today, they are used clinically after microsurgery um, and can assist in the reattachment of fingers and toes oh, gross. and skin grafts. Because one thing leeches do do really well is get the blood flowing and keep it flowing. Um, so they're apparently of great value to plastic surgeons. Ooh. They are, although, of zero value to me. Um, I'm still suffering from residual leech bites. <laughs> which, are they itchy? Yeah. So they, I pull them off and they, like, leave this leech hickey on my <laughs> leg and there's blood pouring down my leg. Finally, once the blood stops, it's extremely itchy for, for like weeks afterwards. Okay. So as far as I'm concerned, these animals truly suck. So, so oh, clearly that was your, your punchline. Um, but I just want to know. I just want to know. Yeah, okay, the mic has been dropped. Um, I want to know. So you can just pull them off. There's no like magic trick that they have to like, you know, they don't leave a bit behind. You have to put like salt on them or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think or it's salt or fire. There is, is there some sort of, you just pull them off? Apparently if you put salt on them, like they spew they spew everything back into you or something. I don't Yuck, know. I wouldn't want that regurgitated no. on. I think, I think if you put salt on them, they like release of their own accord. So you don't get as big of a hickey or it doesn't make. But that kills them. Much. Salt, salt. Kills them, it dries yeah, them they, out. Yeah, but they like release. Yeah, so you're you're not pulling them off, like you're not yeah. yanking them. Off. You can you can use your fingernail as well, just oh, scrape gross. them across. I've okay, just sort of but the whole them up into like as as yeah, as soon as you start scraping them, they go into a little ball, and then like you try and flick them, but then they get stuck on your other fingers. It's completely <laughs> messed up. All right, okay. I think okay. Like I, I think we stop. We should we've, we've bled, we've bled this ago. dry. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook 
and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.